Why, hello, Danny. Hi there, Tyler. Do you know what we're here for? A little bit of Gemini. A little bit of Gemini. That's right. Another episode of Fried Squirms for y'all. We're going to get stoned and talk about some horror movies. Yeah, we is. Gemini this week, back to Japan. Before that, like I said, we're going to get stoned. What did you told me already, and I've already been smoking a little bit today. Uh, so. That's no worries, man. So I brought over two different joints for you. One of them being because uh, it's a little bit on the smaller side. So I was like, I don't want to leave you hanging. So anyhow, I did bring you one from last week I've already mentioned before. It was the Venemoji. And that one is from a dispensary here in town that we frequent on occasion, Greener Pastures. And for those who are unfamiliar, it is a indica dominant cross between poison og and rare dankness number one i think that one clocks in somewhere up in the upper 20 range this one has so citrusy notes and a little bit of that peppery note and you also taste some of that herbaly flavor which uh, is in due part because of myrcene and the other one i brought to you i was gonna say because it is the little one that i'm about to spark yeah so the little guy that i brought you over is from another dispensary here in town stokes who uh we're not unfamiliar with for those who are curious, check out some of Prada Crom's work. I Fuck mean, yeah, Crom works is yeah, the dude. shit. Like three of the five masks that I wear often in these COVID times were all from Crom works. Nice, hell yeah. So. Yeah, so this one is a Tahitian lime. It is a nice sativa blend. And for those who are curious, it is a cross between Skittles with a Z and dosy dose and this one clocks in somewhere around the 20 upper 20s i actually haven't tried it yet i'm going to hold off probably smoke this one first and then delve into it i'm going to go in the opposite order i think i'm going to go this tahitian lime first and then i'll i'll hit one of the others i brought you some uh pineapple express today which we've talked about pineapple express before i mean there's a fucking (laughs) movie about it like do you need me to tell you guys what pineapple i'm not going to tell you go look it up Download Leafly. Stop lingering. Stop. (laughs) There's a goddamn movie about it. I just, I ran out of time this morning and I had to go to the closest shop and that's what they had for their pre-rolls today. No complaints. I like the place, but they don't have the biggest option of pre-rolls most of the time. It's usually at most like three different flavors. Yeah. Well, lucked out today. Lucked out today. It was a good one. I'm going to start in on this. I think you already started in on that. Yes, sir. And then we can start in on the guts and bolts of Gemini. Guts and bolts. All right, guts and bolts. Who and what went into the making of 1999's Gemini? I'm going to say 1999's Gemini because when I look up this movie, there's all sorts of shit. Like, I think oh, it's, it's like 2002 sure. Gemini. Yeah. There's Gemini Man. <laughs> there's yeah, for sure. Fucking Jet Set Gemini. No. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right about that. So start off with our spoiler-free setup. I'm trying to think how far along constitutes a spoiler or not. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're saying. A doctor is seemingly living a great life until things go wrong with his parents and start to also put a strain on his relationship. And then a... Uh, mysterious stranger from his past pops up to haunt him and honestly the name of the movie is gemini you might be able to guess where the mysterious stranger part of it's going but i really don't know what constitutes a spoiler or not for this part (laughs) no i think that's a pretty decent you know setup for what this film entails without spoiling anything but yeah keep in mind the name gemini 
So from week to week, of course, we like to talk about the people in front of the camera and the people who are into the making of the film. And this week is a director, a writer, a cinematographer, and editor slash actor as well, who we've talked about before. So if you go back and you listen to episode 87 of The Fright Squirms, you'll hear our Test Your Fright Volume 2 with my brother-in-law Jeff when we reviewed E.T. the Killer. And then we've also talked about Shinya on episode 110 of Tetsuo the Iron Man, which was a really fun film, man. Mm -hmm. So just to name a few other films in his filmography... He does have the Tetsuo trilogy with Tetsuo 2, Body Hammer, and then he's also done The Bullet Man. A couple of films I've actually picked up recently. There's a box set that Arrow put out, and there's a slew of films that I picked up that I was really excited about. Some of those include uh, Tokyo Fist, Bullet Ballet, a film I highly recommend if you're really into art house films is A Snake of June. Beautiful film. The film Vital and the Nightmare Detective sagas, which is part one and two. And he's also known for films Fires on the Plane and more recently 2018's Killing. And I have mentioned before he's been in a lot of films as an actor as well. Mm. Mm -hmm. All right, now I did mention he helped write the screenplay, but this is loosely based on a short story by... Itogawa Rampo, which is kind of funny if you look up the information, why his name is that. <laughs> right, because that's not his name. It's not. I didn't look up why his name is that. Okay. Why is his name that? So his real name is Taro Hire, or Hirai. The reason why, it's kind of the Japanese way of saying Edgar Allan Poe. And I started, like, you know, saying it out loud, Edogawa, and I'm like, okay, that's, that's the Edgar part, Rampo. And I was like, oh, yeah, they can't say L's. <laughs> so Alan Rampo. Yeah. <laughs> makes sense. I was like, oh, that's fucked up. Is you know, what have you. Very, very popular And that's writer. not to sound as mocking as it's like. No, no, no. Spanish has the same thing with B and V. Exactly. Like Filipinos have the same things with P's and F's, F's and stuff like yeah. that. So, yeah. <laughs> it's just it's the just, language. It's culture. Yes, yeah. it's just the way it is. No big deal. But I was going to say, uh, Itogawa, he is very, very popular writer in Japan because of his mysteries and thrillers and uh, a little thing called Iro Guru, which is like erotic grotesque, mm -hmm. which is really cool. So he was influenced heavily by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and I've already mentioned Edgar Allan Poe amongst others as well. So it's very influential in his works. All right. The music was composed by Chu Ishikawa. It's a gentleman we've actually talked about before because of episode 110. He did the music for Tetsuo the Iron Man. He's got some really cool films, too, that he's also scored for. Did we really do Tetsuo that long ago? I know. It doesn't feel like it, but 70 episodes ago? It does not feel like no, it. No. That was like two years ago. <laughs> what? How? <laughs> I, I feel like that movie was just yesterday. I was just talking, like, not that long ago about fucking Penis Tank. <laughs> I know. It blows my mind sometimes when we do go back and look at the numbered episodes. You're like, holy shit, man. It does feel like just like a couple of weeks ago we talked about that film. That just means that I have to rewatch that movie, that it's been too long. It's <laughs> a good point. Yeah. And being Plus that it's I just. It's only like an hour. Yeah, it's not that long of a film. But I am really curious to see what Arrow did with their version of it on that box set, too. Mm, so, mm -hmm. yeah, that'd give me an excuse. But some of Ishikawa's works I do want to mention include Tetsuo 2, Body Hammer. And the Bullet Man. He's also known for composing the music for Tokyo Fist, Bullet Ballet, Dead or Alive 2. Uh, it's a movie oh. called Birds from 2000. A Snake of June, the Nightmare Detective films, more recently Kotoko from 2011, 
in Fires on the Plane. So he's known for mostly working on Shinya Tsukamoto and Takashi Miike films. All right, this was produced by Yasuhiko Furosato, Toshiaki Nikizawa, Taishi Nishimura, and Tomoyuki Soroko. This uh, production companies were Setek International, Mirabini, and Kaiju Theater. The distributors, big name Tohu Company, for the 1999 Japanese theatrical release, and Image Entertainment helped with the United States DVD release. And more recently, Mondo Macabro helped release the 2020 UK and United States Blu-ray edition of this film, which... Which is what we watched. Yeah, so it was a good excuse not only to bust out that Blu-ray, but to also briefly mention Mondo Macabro, which we'll talk about a little bit more in the next section. All right. The release dates were September 3rd, 1999. This was in Italy at the Venice Film Festival. And then September 15th, 1999 in Japan. All right. The cast. We have a stacked cast. I'm going to try to briefly mention some of their credits because we'll be here all day if not. All right. So leading off, I have Masihiro Motoki. And he plays dual roles. He plays Yukio. And he also plays Sudakechi. And... Some of his films, when you look at him, actually, before you even get into his filmography, I do have to mention this, is that he started his career in a boy band, and he was a teen idol for a very long time. Right. Which is really interesting. And he got out of that, and he started doing some films, as of course, and some of those include a film where he was highly decorated for, and that movie was Somodo Somodont, right? Won a lot of awards for that. He also worked with Takashi Miike in The Bird People in China, which is a film I've actually been hunting down, <laughs> believe it or not. I didn't even realize this guy was in this film, but nice surprise nonetheless. But a few other films of note, he did get a lot of awards for his role in The Departures from 2008. He's also known for the films The Longest Night in Shanghai, The Emperor in August, and The Long Excuse. And moving along, we have Ryu. She plays the role of Rian, and she's actually a model before she was an actress, and she caught the eye of Shinya Tsukamoto because he wanted someone who had like elf-like features and kind of a, a very pronounced voice. Tsukamoto seemed to be very realistic about the fact that Masahiro Motoki was a used handsome to, guy. Yeah. Used, it was a handsome guy and used to be a pop idol, so he needed someone who could play across from a former pop idol, so a model. A model, makes sense, yeah. You got to take the eyes a little bit off of him. <laughs> also, we should point out, just because I'm, I'm sure we both read the booklet, Yeah. unlike a lot of other movies, like the start of this movie is Masahiro Motoki, yeah, not which is, Shinya Tsukamoto at all. No, which is interesting thing to note, too, is he even mentioned this, Masahiro, was, he said that it was a friend who suggested this to him because they were fans of Hirogawa, and because he he knows, and he's actually worked on an Itagawa project before, right, is they were trying to scale it down to something like around an hour, right, mm -hmm. to, to make it like a medium feature-length film. Yeah, basically, he was looking for a project where he's like, so I can, basically so he could show off his range. Yeah, exactly. Like, he was doing challenging roles. He kind of wanted to keep in that vein. Yeah, and this is... You know, a perfect example of that. Making a long story short is because of, of the people they've worked with in the past, they started bringing people on that they knew would fit in and be able to pull these things off, which is really cool. But yeah, if it wasn't for a suggestion and like you were saying, him wanting to take on more challenging roles and then having Shinya on, this would have been a totally different film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... 
But I thought that little detail was neat. Like, yeah. this movie originated with the lead actor. Which is really, you don't hardly ever hear he that. he found the director. Yeah. And then they went from yeah, there. Yeah, well, what happened was uh, Sedic International, they had approached Shinya, and this was the only second time in his career where he took an outside offer on a project that wasn't a, his, mm-hmm. right? Because he usually just, he writes his own stuff, directs, you know, we've already talked about all that. But the film before that was the uh, Hiroko, the Goblin film from 91. Oh, yeah, and yeah. And so he's already worked with them before. They did 13 Assassins. Yeah, Takashi Miike's. It's mm-hmm. just like, yeah. And uh, yeah, long story short, once Toho got on, they got a little bit more backing. They knew it was going to be a little bit more internationally distributed, but and also it was going to be a little bit more of a full length feature. That was film. the thing when Toho came on, that made sure that they were able to distribute it internationally. Right. But that was they also had to extend the length of the film. That was basically like Toho's like we're not going to do it unless it's a full length film. Yeah. So but then, they were already <laughs> only budgeted to be yeah uh, like forty eight minute film or whatever it was. Yeah. That they said. So man, to think about that and what they pulled off. It's pretty amazing. A couple other actors. We've got Yasutaka Sutsui, who plays Yukio's father. And the reason I bring this gentleman up, aside from the fact that he's the father in this film, is that this is a very popular writer. This guy helped write the novel Paprika, Hmm. which was adapted into a film from a director we've already talked about, Satoshi Kon, when we did Perfect Blue. Right, okay. Which is like, man, that's pretty awesome. And another famous body of work he's written was The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. So um, pretty big name. It was really cool. It was like another kind of pop culture icon in Japan to be included in this mix. Really neat. All right, we have Shiho Fujimura. She plays Yukio's mother. When you look at her bodies of work, it's really interesting. She started off in what they call Jidaigeki dramas, which are time period pieces. Mm-hmm. She also worked on some really cool films like uh, Shinobi no Mono, which is a ninja story film series from 62 through 66. And she also appeared in Sleepy Eyes of Death film series from 62 through 69. So some other films of note include Zato Ichi on the Road from 63. She was in Boss Takeshi from 65. She was in Zato Ichi's Cane Sword from 67. She was also in The Falcon Fighters from 69. And more recently, she was in Doctor's Wish from 2014. And it says uh, she won an award, a winner of the special prize for her career at Yokohama Film Festival in 2008. You know who's been trying to get their hands on some of those uh, older Zatoichi films? Friend of the show, Donnie. Yeah? Yeah, he's, nice, been really, he's been really going after some of those old samurai flicks lately. Well, they're definitely there to be had. Dude, is that a, Blind Swordsman is yeah. fucking killer shit, dude. There's been a couple of those period pieces like that mm-hmm. I've been looking forward to myself. Some really good cinema. All right, we have Akaji Maru, who plays the role of Kakube, who is like one of the slum guys. He's the alleged father of oh, one okay. of them. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So when you look at his filmography, some really cool films, you go back, look at 1997's Postman Blues, which is a film I've been kind of looking forward to. It's a film by Sabu, is a guy we've talked about before. He was also in 1997's Cat's Eyes. He was in 2001's Suicide Club. If you've ever seen uh, Kikujiru, which was a beat Takeshi film, I love that film. Oh yeah, I see the big one that you've already pulled up. <laughs> yeah, he was in Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2 as Boss Ozawa. 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 Yeah. Really That's cool. Man. cool. I, well, I just re watched Kill Bills as well. So nice, man. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. And like I said, more recently, such films as Fly Me to Saitama and Hellgirl from 2019. 
we have Misaku Mote, and they play the role of Shige, which is like one of the house servants in the film. And Shige's uh, awesome. I like she Shige. Is, she's I'm really going to say cool. that right now. Anyway. Some of the films that she's known for is I Just Didn't Do It from 2006. She was in Kamome Diner from 2006. And the uh, television series Always Sunset on 3rd 64th Avenue. All right. We have... Is that like it's always sunny in Philadelphia? I wish. That'd be pretty <laughs> awesome. We have Renji Ishibashi. He plays the role of Beggar Monk. He's kind of the guy that hangs out right outside the estate. We've actually talked about him before because of episode 110 of Tetsuo the Iron Man. You want to guess who he was? Oh, wait. Is he the crazy beggar guy in that? He's the tramp. Okay. Oh, he's the tramp. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty fucking awesome. He was also... <laughs> That's fucking amazing. ...in episode 121 because we reviewed Audition. Who was he in Audition again? Oh, uh, old he? man in wheelchair. That's right. Okay, that's yeah. right. Yeah, with the feet and shit. Yeah, yeah the that's feet. Fucking crazy. <laughs> yes, dude. Look at these films. I never would have recognized him. Oh man, check this out. All right, so if you go back a little bit, we've already mentioned some of the Zatoichi. He was in Zatoichi at Large from '72. He was also in the Lone Wolf and Cub series. He was in the Baby Cart in the Land of Demons and White Heaven and Hell films from '73 and '74. If you go, were those the ones that were turned into? Shogun Assassin, do you happen to know? I don't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, I'm not sure either. But uh, yeah, he's been in some really cool stuff, man. <laughs> he was also in The Bird People in China. He was in Dead or Alive. He was in Cowboy Bebop, the movie, as Renji. Oh, um, of course, okay. I'm sure he voiced that. He was also in the film Gozu, which is another Takeshi Miike film I highly recommend. He was in Izu, another <laughs> Takeshi Miike film, The Great Yukai War. A bunch of shit, basically. Yeah, I'm just taking a look to see if there's anything yeah. more recently. Oh, yeah. there was actually a film with uh, Brittany Murphy. He was in The Ramen Girl, where he played Urogawa in 2008. So, yeah, like I said, a lot of television stuff as well. He was also uh, the voice of Oyasan and Yakuza, the Dead Souls video game. All right. We have a gentleman. I don't know exactly where he's at in the film. I have an inkling. But uh, this gentleman is Tomoro Taguchi, who plays the middle-aged patient. I think it's towards the beginning of the film, if I'm not mistaken. The reason I bring him up is because he plays Man in Tetsuo, the Iron Man. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is really interesting. And some other films of note. He was in Tokyo Fist. You might have seen him in Gamera 2, Attack of Legion. He was in the film Andromedia, which I've actually been trying to get my hands on. (laughs) Believe it or not, he was in Bullet Ballet, A Snake of June, Strain Circus. He was also in Gamera the Brave. You might have seen him in such things as Kamen Rider Wizard. He was also in Kabuki Love Hotel and I think more recently in Fukushima 50 from 2020. So that's yeah, pretty interesting seeing him in this film. I've got two other people and that pretty much rounds out our cast and crew. I have Tadonobu Asano, who plays a revenger with sword. I can't believe he was in this film, dude. Earlier in the week, you told me, like, oh, there's somebody that pops up in this, and you'll know exactly who it is when you see him. And I'm like, all right. And I thought it might be him at first. And then I started watching the movie, and I was stoned and shit, obviously. And I kind of forgot, and I wasn't, I forgot that you said that I'd know him as soon as I saw him, basically. 
and I kept trying to place the main guy. I'm like, did I see him somewhere? Am I just, am I fucking dumb? Do I not remember? And then Tadanobu Asano pops up, and I'm like, oh no, that's who you were talking about. Holy shit. Yeah, like, hell yeah. Like I said, as brief as it was, it was still pretty awesome. All right. Not that we necessarily have to bring him up, but we did talk about him on episode 87. I've already mentioned before because we did Test Your Fright with Jeff. That was our second volume. If you don't know, check out some of his films. He's been in some really dope-ass shit like uh, Electric Dragon, 80,000 Volts. He's a Hogan in the Marvel Thor movies. He was uh, Temujin in the Genghis... God, I can't remember the name of the actual movie, but it was the Genghis Khan biopic that was done. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know we we mentioned Mm -hmm. that a while back. Another film I'd maybe recommend if you like films like these is a Tokyo zombie from 2005. That's actually pretty funny, good zombie esque film. And, uh, yeah, I'm just looking at some other things. He was in the parasite films, part ones and two. Oh, 47 Ronin. Yeah. Thor Ragnarok, stuff like that. Mortal Kombat as Raiden, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's coming up. I'm so excited for that. Oh my God. He's our new Raiden dude. How fucking dope is that going to be? That's going to be fucking dope, dude. uh, He's going to be awesome. Dude, everything that they've been saying is that this new Mortal Kombat has game-accurate fatalities, which means it's going to be a gore fest. Damn. It's going to be a lot of fun. Finish him. Oh, yeah. Hell, yeah. I'd say go for it. (laughs) All right. Last but not least, we have Naoto Takanaka, who plays the role of Rich Man in this film. And uh, some things of note from him, we have Hiroko the Goblin from 91. I've talked about the film Tokyo Fist. You might have seen him in The Happiness of the Katakuris. Man, I talk about a wild Miyake film. Uh, he was also in such things as uh, Sinjuku Incident from 2009. He was in the Gonin Saga film from 2015. And more recently, Fly Me to the Saitama and Enter the Fat Dragon. He's been in a lot of television animation he's also done video game work he's done some live action voiceover dubbing roles as uh let's see val kilmer and george clooney in batman forever and batman and robin as bruce wayne slash batman <laughs> so that's kind of interesting nick fury quite a several times for the captain america films the avenger uh, films spider-man films uh yeah pretty neat all right so yeah that pretty much rounds up cast and crew you gave us a synopsis or a brief setup uh some warnings for this film Let's see. Warnings for this film. There's violence. There's some blood and gore. Mm-hmm. There's sexual and moments, but they're not like, they're more sensual. There's a definite threat of sexual assault, though it's unclear right. how far it ever got. Good point. She was definitely attacked. We'll just say that. Yeah. But how far? We're not we, quite sure. Yeah. You don't see anything for one thing. Oh, that's why we're sure. <laughs> yeah. But what follows immediately also makes it very unclear. I totally agree with that as well. So it's not like, I don't know, like overtly like violent or like there's not a lot of cursing. It's more or less like a, a period piece because it is set in 1910, that time period. Okay. How about it's an Edgar Allan Poe, right? It's Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. Based on that. So some of Edgar Allan Poe's stories were a little bit more like detective mysteries. This is a little bit more on that side. I agree. It's still it's still a horror, kind of like Edgar Allan Poe's stories were still horrors. But 
That's more the sort of action and thinking that you're getting towards I agree. in this movie. Totally agree with that. There you go. Let's just fucking talk about it so that we don't have to fucking Over beat around the bush. <laughs> God damn it. Let's just go talk about this movie. <laughs> How does that make you squeal? All right. So first off, I think I'm probably just going to have to like buckle down and watch anything Shinya Tsukamoto did. Because so far, he's fucking batting 100. I totally agree like, with that. Like batting 1,000. Yeah. Like, God damn. Gemini's a good fucking it's film. Like, <laughs> Everything I have seen so far, including this film as well, I totally agree with you there. I was thinking about some of the Japanese directors that you and I have talked about, some others we've seen outside of just the podcast. And man, I mean, huge fan of Takashi Miike. You can never take that away. But I would say this, Shinya Tsukamoto is up there in that caliber. I feel like I didn't bother to look it up. But my initial thoughts upon just watching this movie and what it feels like, with the way the camera is set, way colors are used, I'm like, oh, like, Mike looks up to this guy, right? And like, I mean, pos- almost definitely just because of Tetsuo. You yeah. know what I mean? Oh, but, it's highly influential. We've talked about that, you know, at nauseum for the most part. But I can't see how it, how it cannot be an inspiration, you know? You've already mentioned it, too. Is the uh, like behind the scenes, like the making of, or Mike is the one who is the actual filmographer on that? Right, it's fucking insane. Like, yeah, you fucking let me that Blu-ray and threw it over at me, and I was like, oh, okay, cool, and I watched it, and I'm like, okay, the movie's dope. And then had a little bit extra time before I started recording this afternoon, and I was just gonna play video games, and I was just looking at the packaging there again and shit, and it's like making of directed by Takashi Mike, and I'm like, what the. <laughs> Holy shit, I, I started know. watching it. I ended up not having enough time to finish it, even though it was only 17 minutes long. But yeah. it was super cool, some of the shit that they were just showing from behind the scenes. Also, it was a pretty basic behind-the-scenes look. I agree. I don't necessarily think it needed to be directed by Takashi Miike. No, I mean, it, was, it wasn't anything <laughs> like super extravagant or nothing like that. But it also gives you an idea of how they were pulling shots off and how it translates in the edit and the cut and all that good stuff. And man, it's, it's really cool. I always enjoy that kind of stuff, the behind the scenes and making ofs, you know, it gives me a better appreciation for the overall film itself. Like we've both already said, it seems like just yesterday we were watching Tetsuo. So it was weird in that behind the scenes re-seeing Shinya Tsukamoto again and being like, the last time I saw you was in completely different circumstance. No kidding, right? And then prior to that, it was like, you were this undercover buff dude. <laughs> right? And Ichi, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, but, I mean, I've enjoyed everything he's put out, like I said, in, up to this point. And to, maybe to give a little bit of insight to our listeners on the reason why we chose this film too is I had mentioned briefly that Mondo Macabro had put this out just a few months ago. And I've actually been getting a lot of their films dating back to like the mid 2000s. Mm-hmm. I've already talked about that once again ad nauseum about film collecting or whatnot. But they put out some really cool films. They put out what they consider like cult films, mostly East Asia and everywhere in between, right? So it's why they call it mondo world films of the macabre and interesting Mm -hmm. and what have you so i've always enjoyed the titles that they've put out that's the reason why i buy a lot of their films but when i heard that this was coming out 
And on top of hearing Arrow was put out the box set, I was like, man, this is a great way to pick up like a shitload of his films on a pretty decent budget. Like mm-hmm. for about a hundred bucks, you can get about eleven or twelve of his films on Blu-ray. That's not bad. D- on no. Blu-ray, that's fucking great. Yeah, with all this behind the scenes and booklets and all some some really cool shit. Anyway, I was like, man, I don't know when or if we'll have a chance to talk about it at you know whenever but it's like this will be an interesting film i think this is one that a lot of people probably don't know about when you mention shinya tsukamoto because of tetsuo right and so certain films get kind of overshadowed mm -hmm. which is no fault of their own it's just that is such a, a landmark film and as much as i love this film it's kind of formulaic yeah in a sense I feel like I've seen versions of this story before. I just think this is a better done version than most of those. Right. It's it's a story that's been told, who knows how many variations of this, you know? But you're right. He puts his thumbprint on it. Right. It's not necessarily a body snatch. Right. But it's a doppelganger. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's, I mean, I don't know if we've covered many doppelgangers on this, and I'm fucking way too stunned to start thinking really clearly (laughs) about it. But I feel like I've seen versions of that sort of like, I'm just going to assume your identity before. What I thought was really neat, as I was reading some reviews, because I did have some free time leading up to this episode, but somebody mentioned the film Scanners towards the end of that film. And I was like, that's kind of interesting, because there is a little bit of that in this film. I mean, even though... You know, it's it's a different telling and there's different things that go along with this film compared to Scanners, right? But they mm-hmm. do share something in common in terms of, like, identity. You're coming out almost like absorbing another identity, but, you know, you're taking two separate identities and making them one. You're combining the two. And that's kind of what this film is doing, mm-hmm. you know? So I can see why they compare that a little bit. And there's some influence. Shinya Tsukamoto is influenced a little bit by David Cronenberg, because of the body horror and some of the social commentaries that go along with it. So um, it would make sense a little bit to compare those two films. Part of the reason I really like this movie is I do ultimately feel like this movie is kind of supposed to be taken. I mean, it's supposed to be taken like the events that are going on are supposed to be taken at face value, I think. Yeah. yeah. I don't think we're supposed to think that certain characters don't actually exist. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it's a story that it's easy to do that with because the story's more about, like you said, like the fullness of identity and what it means to do one thing or or another. And Yeah, I mean, it makes you question certain things about your surroundings, who you are as a person, you know, like the, the more philosophical questions of life, right? Which Tom Meese is a guy who wrote that booklet, right? He's done some... Some more insight into Japanese cinema. I think that's his like his expertise. Mm-hmm. You know, he's wrote some really cool stuff about Shinya Tsukamoto and Mike and all these guys. But the point I was making with that is the insight that he kind of gives too, and the way that Tsukamoto is kind of you know telling this story. It's what we were saying with the identity thing, right? Like trying to identify in this context. Most of his films prior dealt with more of like the urbanization and like building concrete all around you, a concrete jungle. So you're the metamorphosis is man and technology and what have you. But this one's different in it's that regard. Piece. Right. So this one is more about, I think connecting with the animalistic, na- like natural side 
mm-hmm. because this is the era before the big boom of all that stuff, right? But this era kind of ushered in that as well. But the point I'm making is, is I think that's the thing that separates this film from like the Tetsuos and Snake of Junes and things like that is this one, it is very formulaic, right? It, it doesn't detract too much from his style, but with this story, he twists it, right? To give it a, a, a more unique, I think, look into like, you know, confronting identity crisis and all these other fears, sorrow and what have you, mm-hmm. you know, that people deal with on a... Regret. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are, it's more humanistic, I think, in his approach. I mean, not that his other films are, but this one may be a little bit more so, mm-hmm. you know. Backing it up for a second, though, on the Mondo Macabro bent, mm-hmm. their opening title sequence is super <laughs> fucking dope. But that goddamn thing was probably like five times longer than it needs to be. Yeah. And if you're not careful, that shit can get super loud, too. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? bet. Oh, my God. Yeah. Dude, little side note, little tangent since you mentioned that. I was kind of hoping that you'd say something about that, <laughs> to be honest. Because that's <laughs> another thing I like about Mondo Macabro is you know it's one of their films because of that fucking opening sequence that you get on their DVDs and Blu-rays. Yeah, so it's it's really cool, man. They they have some really funky ass movies in their collection. It's a cool little fucking sequence, but yeah. it's like a fucking minute, dude. <laughs> it is. I don't it know is. how long. It feels like it's. A, yeah, it's it carries, a long. It carries on opening, and lets you know. Dude. It lets you know for sure. All right, I guess maybe leaning a little bit more into the film abstractly, I suppose, is I like how this film opens up. I will say this: the first time through, I felt a little like ah, it felt so different from some of his other films we've already mentioned, right? I've seen A Snake of June, Tetsuo. I've seen him in Ichi the Killer. I'm trying to think if I've seen any other of his films. I don't think I have. But I was thinking that how, how different they are from this film. And at first I was like, I don't know how much I'm going to like this film, you know? Mm-hmm. And the more it kind of carried on, I was like, okay. And it wasn't, honestly, it wasn't until the second time through where I'm like, it kind of gobsmacked me. I was like, man, this movie's really fucking good because I was paying a lot more attention. So my first time through, I had the hardest fucking time paying attention to anything in like the first fucking half of the movie. By the second half of the movie, I don't know what it was, but something, I'll fucking tell you what it was. I know what yeah. it was. The soundtrack to this movie pulled me in more than anything. It's good. And it finally made me fucking snap, too, because it kept doing weird shit, super yeah. vocal-based shit. Like reverse tracking and stuff. Lots of reverse tracking. And at a certain point, whatever, I don't know what the fuck, why I couldn't concentrate during the first half of the movie, yeah. but it kept pulling my attention back to it. And at a certain point, I started watching, and I just got more and more engrossed. And I'm like, I'm super primed now. I can't wait for my second viewing <laughs> yeah. because now I know like this is going to be cool and I enjoyed it from the beginning to the end. Yeah, likewise. This second time through, I caught myself pausing it not because I was like bored or it's because I was like, man, this it's making me think. It's like it's turning, you know, those cogwheels in your brain. And if it wasn't a part that was making me think, it was pretty. Yeah, for sure. Like the cinematography is beautiful, the score it's very engaging and it does tip off certain things without being too blatant about them and that's just like another one of those things is the very opening sequence is creepy it's a little eerie it's haunting the score is you know and then you see those rats on the corpse and they're doing like their little rat king screams and shit the opening is super cool it's gory it's kind of creepy yeah 
I love how it looks. It also feels super fucking dramatic compared to the rest of the movie that is kind of borders on a black comedy at times. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. Especially with how operatic and flamboyant fucking Sudakichi can be. Yeah, very theatrical. Mm -hmm. And just people's reactions or seeming lack of reactions (laughs) based on all of their eyebrows being painted over. Yeah, it was an interesting touch to this as well because it does make them devoid of certain expressions. So a lot of the rest of the movie borders on black comedy. That opening seems super fucking dramatic. I know. And I was thinking too, I was like, man, where is he going with this? This is kind of a, I wasn't expecting this opening, right? First time through, like I said, didn't really think about it. You know, even when you figure out the context of that opening shot because it plays out later on in the film super quick mm-hmm. and you're like damn that was that <laughs> i was like that is so fucking clever because you're right they made that scene over dramatic because in the context of what's going on they're just running through the slums mm-hmm. <laughs> and that happened to be a part of that run i was like that is pretty cool <laughs> that's the tie-in so I mean, what the movie feels like it's about is way more exciting than what it's about. Mm -hmm. Like, the actual action of this movie, I think, can be summed up pretty quickly. Yeah, it's pretty simple for the most part, really, when you think about it. Doctor has a good life, Mm -hmm. but his parents kind of weirdly are dismissive, honestly, of both him and his wife, but especially his wife. Oh, yeah. you know, But him a bit, too. Yeah, they kind of don't like the direction he's going in, right? They're Even though he's a decorated dude. war vet, technically, because he was a combat doctor. One of my first notes is he's decorated and venerated. Yeah. You know, not only has he won medals, but people adore him and they go to him. His wife weirdly has amnesia. As things go on, his dad gets murdered first First, yeah his dad first then the mom then the mom then there comes an incident where the fact that he is super fucking classist comes out (laughs) yeah because there is a social commentary weaved through this but i don't feel it's maybe weaved as hard as in say tetsuo yeah, this one... It's there. This one is. It's not like But it's the, a little bit more individual than like a whole. Yeah, and I think because of the nature of these films, right? This one, I, I, this might be a weird way of saying it, but this one feels like more open air, whereas in Tetsuo, everything felt like very confined because, you know, super industrial and just everything, buildings all around you. Well, and that's the thing. Like Tetsuo was trying to be... Learn how to be more at whole with your surroundings Mm -hmm. when your surroundings become so alien and constructed. Whereas this is becoming more whole with yourself and the chaos that can exist within. Yeah, for sure. So it's still about the whole, but a different whole. Yeah, there's just, just different aspects to it. Yeah, there's different things attaching these two different concepts, I guess. But he's super classist. Yeah, oh, without a doubt. And that puts a strain on their relationship right after both of his folks have died. As he's out contemplating things, he gets attacked. As wild. Turns out it's his twin brother 
that he never knew he had that got kind of moses out <laughs> yeah. as a child. Yeah, this is a parable for a lot of things. And he's back for revenge that he's going to enact by usurping his life. He's living the good life. Dude's living the good life. Dude's twin's going to take it from him and keep him alive down in a well long enough to know that he's got his revenge, basically. <laughs> there, Man, I think silly shit all the time, but there was a song that kept running through my head anytime I saw Yukio down in the well. Goodbye, horses. No, man. <laughs> I kept hearing Alice in Chains down in a hole. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just kept hearing that playing. I'm like, that's it's not the time, but it's definitely the, the place. Come to find out that oh, the doctor's name is Yukio. Turn the twin is Sudakichi. Mm-hmm. Turns out that Sudakichi was raised in the slums and the wife, Rin, also was. They were an item before they got separated when he fucking killed a dude. Yeah. That's well, when he killed an boss. entire family. Right. We, it's revealed why the guy's trying to exact revenge. But now he's having to act like he's Yukio to truly get his revenge the way he wants to. Mm-hmm. That's the only reason I can guess anyway. Yeah, because he's still deceiving Rin, even though she knows. I think that's the thing that makes this film unique in that aspect is you have another character who's tying all these events together who is a complete outsider to Yukio, outside of the fact, you know. She thinks the whole time that it's Sudakichi coming back... But he's also deceiving her into thinking it's you. Right. That's what I'm getting at. It's like this whole time she's she's confused because he's deceiving her still with the makeup, even though she knows deep down that's him. Mm-hmm. But she just sums it up like Yukio is being possessed by the spirit of his twin brother. Right. And so that's their, their unity. But eventually <laughs> Yukio gets out, kills Sudakichi, mm-hmm. ends up having a kid with Rin. And then ends the movie walking down in the slums. Yeah, I mean, that's the film in a nutshell. So that's the basics of the action. Now let's talk about this shit, because this is a movie to fucking take in. Yeah, this one, there's a lot to, well, not a whole lot to unpack, but there's some really interesting things to note, and you have to pay attention because you'll miss it if you're not, you know. it's Like I said, it's not heavy. Like, I'll give you an example. The first time watching this film when the father gets offed, right? It's Rin's going because the music cues and Mm -hmm. there's been a smell that's been permeating throughout the house, right? And there's been little subtle hints and clues at the shadowy figure and there's unease in the home and all this stuff. Did the smell thing remind you of Parasite? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Especially with the fact that there is classism classism in in this. Like, I don't think that this isn't a good film to partner you know yeah. this is a kind of a good companion piece to parasite i think way. that's a yeah i think that is a good way of tying those two films together yeah mm-hmm. they, they are very good companion pieces considering <laughs> yeah some so, of the action that's going on and without a doubt man usurping of roles and such yeah so what i was getting at was you know you're like damn that's fucking weird because at first i'm like is that a tarantula in his mouth i was like well mate no it looks like a plant of some sort you know Mm -hmm. and i was like i wonder if there's more of it there probably is a a meaning that i'm missing you know 
maybe symbolically. I don't know. For I just know it was a fucking weird death. Yeah, yeah. I'm still trying to figure that one out myself. Yeah, and then the mother is a little bit more, you know, apparent. But I was like, is this guy supposed to be supernatural or a ghost-like figure? You know, until much later, it's revealed who he is and stuff. But it does have a very ominous feel and he's doing these theatrical cartwheels and what have you and showing the scar it all makes sense second time through it's like pretty obvious but some of the things that are happening in those scenes i'm like oh that's pretty cool where the mom sees the scar she there's a quick cut of like water mm-hmm. and then she has a heart attack because she's putting it together who the fuck he is and i'm like damn that's cool man because first time through it doesn't make sense second time through it's like oh this is yep. starting to make sense <laughs> And I love it. It, it just it, it makes the film just open up. Sudakichi's face emerging from the shadow when he first God, encounters the mom is maybe my favorite shot in the movie. And I think having his eyebrows, you know, blotted out gives him a, a more ominous feel. Certain times in those shadows too, it almost looks manga esque, and it, it captures what a villain looks like in the shadows. Now, like I said, I think. This movie is supposed to be interpreted as everything that happens happens at face value, but there's still lessons to be learned. However, due to the way some of these characters are presented, you can make an argument that's not the case. No character ever knows for sure by the end of this movie that they for sure interact with a Sirokichi. Yeah, that's a good point. Those nurses or whatever... There's no outside way of saying for sure, other than I think maybe them smelling the stench in the beginning, that Sirokichi and Yukio aren't already the same person. Mm-hmm. Even though we get flashbacks to Sirokichi's past, they mirror things that Yukio is kind of going through in a way. The big break with his dad, at least, seems to come after the war and with... Sudakichi, his break comes after he's become a murderer. Yeah, good point. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty well. Yeah, but that makes sense. His father has a weird obsession with cleanliness, which is what led to Sudakichi being thrown out in the first place, yeah, presumably. Yeah. And he's always, you know, wiping himself off and stuff. And of course, Sudakichi's father, when the only time we see him when he's throwing him out, is white. You know, there is symbolical things like that, if you pay attention to it, like a cleanliness and a dirtiness aspect of this film. I don't think it's supposed to be interpreted at all that way. Right. Because the message still holds because of how it all plays out in the end. Yeah. Because they continue with a lot of that symbolism. And by the end, like, Yukio has become Tsurikichi. He's dirty and brings himself back up yeah. and then becomes a murderer by killing his, his brother. own brother. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that it ties the essence of the story back together, right? It's a parable that's been played out who knows how many different times. But I think it's the thing that also separates it as well as what I'm going to get at is this one, I think it's a little bit more on the artsy side. <laughs> Not to sound presumptuous, but, you know, this is a little bit more of a thinking man's film, too. You know, Mm -hmm. you have to think a little bit about this film. Otherwise, you'd be like, this is kind of boring. But, man, just having the thing that he fears the most become the thing that he is now, through virtue of really no fault of his own. He's just, you know, he's been spoiled. He's ignorant of things. He follows in the footsteps of his father, who goes by a certain 
Western aesthetic and morality and shit. He mentions the Germans, stuff like that. So he's following a certain path, and unbeknownst to him, he has a twin brother who's on the complete opposite spectrum of what he knows. And then there's that flip, that dichotomous flip, where he has to inhabit that now. So now he's changed. There's a metamorphosis of sorts. And he's having to confront some of the things that I think he's known from the get-go. He even mentions, I don't too. think he ever truly thought that Rin was anything other than poor. Yeah. I mean, he says he, he validates her, his wealth, his status, etc. But then they also have that argument, too, where he says these things that his dad says, but he's also, I don't want to be that. I'm not, I don't want to be that. But there's always the but, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he's following that path. But yeah, this is the breaking point. I, what I think is really interesting is because of Rin, that's the thing that ties the two brothers together. So there's that triangle and then the family and all these other things. You know, as weird as it sounds, like if it wasn't for her, they would probably, I mean, they'd cross each other's paths, but they wouldn't know maybe their history together. Right. You know, that's where I find it interesting. Her character is kind of like that pivot point in the film where it's binding all these things together. Well, their interaction and their relationship's really interesting, too, just because there's a part in this movie that ended up being felt really kind of sweet to me because of how how it all sort of plays out throughout the movie. Way earlier in the movie, when he's confronting his mom and she also has class issues and is still unsure about Rin, he's like, no, don't worry. I listened to you. I believe what you told me. You can judge a person by their clothes. And so she's okay. Because the story his mom's always heard is that their second meeting, Winring thought he was Sudakichi and got all dolled up. Which, firstly, obviously <laughs> she was a poor person trying to look rich. Exactly. But when the first time he actually saw her, she was naked. He saw her without any facade and still ended up falling in love with her. Yeah. And they end up staying together after everything that they've individually been through with her being once again rejected by the real Sudakichi in favor of him wanting to be Yukio. And with acting as revenge. And with Yukio having to come to the true realization of who his wife is. Yeah. And becoming a murderer and having the realization that his views on class before must have been wrong because he came from where he came from and still became a murderer. And they meet again on that riverbank as he's just as dirty as she is. Yeah. And I was thinking that too. It's like, which actually makes that uh, moment really touching in a way yeah, that I because didn't expect. She has that moment where she's kind of like, all right, this is the card reality has dealt me you know it's like yukio is now sudakichi or his you know we've already mentioned sudakichi is now yukio yeah and exactly isn't going back to being sudakichi right for me. no no exactly his so revenge is more important there's like this really sad tragic realization and it almost for me it appeared at first that she's going in water just to drown herself i thought that too <laughs> and then yeah yukio comes out of the woods looking like sudakichi and she looks back and she's like, you know, it makes me wonder how much of her, 
and this is what the film does kind of to you. It makes me wonder how much does she honestly think that it's still Yukio and not Tsurikichi in Yukio, <laughs> you know? Because of how the film kind of unravels after that is it seems like everything goes back to... Oh, he's gaslighting her like a motherfucker. Yeah, it's, it's wild. And it seems... I don't understand. It seems like he's trying to reinforce to her that she might actually have amnesia, even though he knows that it's an act. Yeah. It's fucked. That's what I'm getting at. Tsudakichi's like, fucked up. And the fact that Yukio has to embrace the fact that he's part Tsudakichi is kind of fucked up. But I think it kind of falls in line with Shinya Tsukamoto movies, too. Uh, oh. <laughs> Without a doubt, man. And that's, that's, what I'm that's how you know it's his thumbprint because of these intricacies in his films and these things that kind of make you question certain ideas and concepts. That's what I like about this film is these questions start to pop up, you know, and it's like, whoa, this is, <laughs> I wasn't really paying attention until now. And it's like, damn, this, this is pretty heavy, man. Like mm-hmm. the implications this film is saying is, you know, you, you were mentioning a little bit earlier with the fire, because that was the thing that in the beginning, Yukio was like, if it wasn't for the fire, you know, you wouldn't have this amnesia and it should have been the slums instead. And, but in reality, that wasn't the case, <laughs> you know, and this, yeah, and this whole time because of the separation, it made me think, you know, was she sold into prostitution, you know, and then he was just, whatever the fuck happened to him. Are we meant to believe that the rape happened? Because I feel like her line calling him a wicked man is supposed to imply that. I think so. But the action that we're shown implies that as he set upon her is when the fire started. Yeah, there was a struggle of some kind. But there was also something that happened in between that because she looks disheveled. Mm-hmm. And then when she peers back, you know, there's that sequence with her in it too, performing with That Tsurikichi. was fucking just... I still don't know how to explain that. The only thing that, for me, that makes sense of it is she's kind of like hallucinating that a little bit to maybe blot out what just happened. Mm -hmm. You know, she's like, this is maybe a happy time in her life when they were performing with, you know, the people in the the slums, if you will. Oh, yeah, yeah, You know, because she's like calling to Sudakichi, you know, but of course he's not there. And then when he does turn, his eyes are bleeding and shit. So to me, it's more of like a delusion, a dreamlike state, you know. He's kind of known for that a little bit too, but that's the only thing I can make sense of it. Is That's the part that I still have the biggest question on. Like everything yeah. else kind of makes sense and like how it pertains <laughs> to like embracing identity. There's things stuff, that, that but... Mike does like that shit too, man, where he'll interject certain things in the film that's directly Japanese cultural references that it's like, man... I don't know this reference, but I just know it's trippy right now. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of what this is. But no, I, I just like her character. When you finally figure out exactly what her character is and who she is and the things that she's been struggling with, she doesn't realize that they're brothers until much later on. And then by that time, it's like it's already too late, you know, because of all the things you mentioned too. It's, Sudakichi just wants revenge. He can give a fuck less about Rin. Then she's just a byproduct of all this. Yeah, he has to have revenge in the exact way that he wants. That's why he keeps gloating to him in the well, dude. And he he freaks out when he thinks that he actually used the knife. It was just supposed to be a taunt. Exactly. Yeah, because you see that, like, it almost looked like panic a little bit in his eyes mm-hmm. or, like, disdain. Like, man, I can't believe he actually did it. I was just fucking with you, dude. Yeah, not until he sees it in the garden. He's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> 
that was pretty cool. It was. I like that because there's a lot of mirroring in this film too. I noticed the second time through, first time in the film, I think, is when um, the beggar confronts Yukio, right? And he's calling him a bastard and all this other shit. And then he kind of runs off to the little washroom or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he's ladling the water and he sees there's a reflection in the well. And he also, he sees it a little bit too after his mom passes where he's like investigating and Right. He yeah, opens yeah. it and sees the reflection of himself. Like, like, Arr. I thought that was kind of clever. It's foreshadowing things, of course. But there's also a lot of mirroring of these two characters. There was one thing where I still felt like, and maybe this was just me wanting to see this, considering it was Shinya Sugimoto film, but I still felt like he couldn't quite get away from making certain things feel mechanical. And like when the police were sweeping the house. Yeah. I don't know how he made the camera movements combined with the people movements make me feel like it was just like pistons in an engine moving around, but it felt like that. It felt just like a fucking concrete jungle maze almost like, yeah, there's, I mean, there's certain things that I think he just can't get away from. Right. It's some of, (laughs) it's just his nuances. Like Mm -hmm. the editing techniques are very, some of it's kind of like quick cuts, you know, like you were saying, some of it's just long pans, you know, you get the sense of the scenery and the colors he's using. And it's like, it's a very pretty film, man. It blows my mind that he has his thumbs on like the writing and cinematography and editing. And <laughs> like, well, then again, that lets you know that this is his film. The first time through, I actually completely checked out and I did not catch what the problem was, the choosing the mayor over the kid. I think I got up and like took a piss during that sequence or something. I have no idea. I must have thought nothing exciting was going to happen at that point. And so the second time through being like, oh, that's why she's pissed at him. (laughs) Let me now I get it. Let me ask this. This is one one. It's not a burning question, but, you know, you can say maybe it is towards the end of the film, almost the end of the film. Right. Okay. Where you see the birthing sequence and then you see the two twins and then the birthmark. Or the scar. Is that supposed to imply that the cycle's starting over and he did it again with That's his That's what kids? I was going to ask you. Is that what they're implying? Because you can also read it as like, oh, no, it's just, it's showing like. But it's like, no, because the thing I was queuing on is like, all right, you see the childbirth. She has one child with her, Rin, that is, before he exits and follows the other kid into the slums and the music cues. And I'm like, is it implying that she's, or they, at least they are, like I said, creating that cycle again with the two brothers, separating them, float one down the river again. So the first time I watched it, I felt like the ending was really dark. And not only was that it implying that the cycle was starting again, but that circumstances has pushed him to... Him going down to the slums felt like revenge. Yeah, like it feels that. like this is just like the origin story for a serial killing slum doctor. <laughs> yeah. The second time through, I'm not as sure. I think it just as easily is filling in the gap. And I think it's just as easily him remembering that both things are within him. And he continues wearing his surgery jacket into the slums. And his nurse tells him to be careful is because he is now acknowledging that they are people like him and he's going off to do some free work. Right. I totally agree with that. There's a part of me that was feeling that the second time through as well as 
you know, it's like, all right, he can empathize. He can at least get a sense of the things that he initially was afraid of. It's like I've, in his world, he's gone through some of that to a degree. And now, yeah, instead of running away from it, he's going to do it head on, practices, you know, his practice or whatever in the slums. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of what I got out of it. But then I was like, man, if he really did have twins, I wonder how much of a hand he had in the separation of them if that is the case. Right. (laughs) So, yeah, I was like, man, that's pretty heavy. It also made me think of imprint a little bit, some of that aspect of it, the deformities and, you know, the unwanted. And I was reading a little bit too. Anybody can correct me if I'm wrong here because I'm not an expert in this field, but I was reading like during this time period that it set in that that was not an uncommon practice of the upper society, like wealthy people. If if their kid had a blemish in their eyes, they're like, nope. Not not, my kid. Not going to deal with it. (laughs) So I think that's a little bit maybe what this film's implying a little bit because it's a time period piece and maybe that's a result too of that same cyclical thinking, you know, sins of the father, all that stuff, where it's like, oh, oh, <laughs> we've got a twin who's like Sudakichi, probably going to be just like him. Mm-hmm. And there's, yeah, repeating the whole thing again. All right, something outside all of this intellectual shit. <laughs> How do they have our man, Tadunobu Asano, looking like a grown-up Rufio? <laughs> That's so funny. Damn, Peter Pan. Yeah, that's fucking hilarious. Uh, Actually, he looked like a badass until he took off the jacket. I know. I was like, oh, yeah, he should have kept that shit on. But that was really cool seeing him in that sequence. And then the whole, you know. I didn't expect him to get off so quickly when he showed up. Yeah, I don't know. I was was hoping it'd be played out a little bit more. Because, you know, he's got the sword. He's ready. Mm -hmm. You know, they're waking out of a dead sleep. And Zodokichi's like, no, fuck that. I got your ass. He did. Uh, but the blood spray looked good. Yeah, that was cool. I was like, oh, that's something else you start to notice a little bit in Japanese films. They they like the spray. We've talked about it before. That was, fuck, him showing up, though. I was just like, oh, my Hell God. I know yeah. I already said it once, but I was just like, oh, my God, yes, he's here. Yeah, I was excited about that. Yeah, I think some of the things that impressed me the most is, yeah, the cinematography was, like I said, was gorgeous, man. The use of the colors and... I even think the movements of this film, too, like you were mentioning, some of it is dark comedy, black humor, what have you, because of the movements they're like. At the beginning of the film, you see them like... Sudakichi straight up cartwheels out of a room. Yeah, dude. <laughs> I mean... That's again, I'm like, on top of him, like, you know, creeping out of the shadows, looking very demonic, and then he he cuts that cartwheel, like, what the fuck? <laughs> and then he lifts his leg, you know, like... His pants, leg, whatever. And then all of a super, like, he's super hamming it up on the top of the well. Dude. It's awesome. I love it. Yeah. Some of it's, like, really, like, actually, like, really good, intimidating, like, scary type I shit. I like but... when he's kind of, like, you know, has that menacing growl. He's, like, barking at him. Mm-hmm. I'm like, damn, that looks good. <laughs> they did a good job. I don't know how much you got to see of the documentary, but it was kind of neat seeing, like, the scaffolding for that well and shit. It was a pretty fucking big well mm. they made it was like 30 close no, to 30 feet or so that part yeah so you know they're walking up the scaffolding to get the shots and it was pretty cool seeing them because you know yeah guys helping yeah. them supporting them and they actually did a pretty good job of using green screen in this film mm. believe it or not and some of it was 
during those garden sequences with the struggle and the choking and stuff like that, uh, you know, they'd had a, an actor, of course, who would choke. Oh, <laughs> for the popping yeah. up, the head just popping up, like, look who it is. It's me, bitch. Yeah. And I was like, they did a pretty good job, man. Because once again, this is 1999. And we've talked about some of the films in that time period who were experimenting. <laughs> And some was not good. Not every film was The Matrix in 99. <laughs> I know, right? But I think they did a really good job of masking some of that stuff is what I'm getting at. Yeah, they definitely did. They definitely did. Yeah, and to consider, once again, this film initially was only supposed to be like maybe a little bit over an hour lengthwise. And then... I'm curious what that version would have looked like, because this one didn't seem like it was padded for time. No, and I wonder how much closer of an adaptation they wanted to make it from a, the Rampo as opposed mm -hmm. to having, you know, Sukamoto put his twist on it. Right, because, like, in the story, the brother Rin basically oft. just exists. Yeah, she, she's just a cipher, is what they describe her as. She's just a filter. She's not as important. And the Sudakichi character, the way I'm seeing it is that Yukio gets killed and dumped into the well and then Sudakichi just tries to yeah he pretty much just tries to become Yukio from the full name of the short story I'm assuming that the story is framed as Sudakichi confessing on his deathbed yeah that's what it says to a chaplain so yeah yeah it would make sense that this is a confessional so it has to be a short story it's just that collection of how this came to be yeah which I thought was pretty neat but it also this is getting back to Edgar Allan Poe. You had mentioned this a little bit too. Is is taking elements from his doppelganger tale, William Wilson. Mm. Yeah, because of, they like to to use the doppelganger. So as opposed to where, you know, you become frightened by it, and you know, there's this one like kind of meets it head on. There's like you know a confrontation, and then there's something as something on the other side comes out of it. The combination of the two. Mm -hmm. That's where it, it deviates from Poe's. Yeah, like there's some. Oh, there is a couple of things I didn't want to mention. There are a couple of people that were brought on the project because of the time constraints and because of some of the projects they worked on together, believe it or not. But I did write down and I learned that uh, Sukamoto, he enlisted the help of celebrated set designer Yohei Tanada, who helped on the Kill Bill films, right? And Masahiro. The guy who played the dual roles of Yukio and Serakichi, he brought in famed costume designer Michiko Ketamura, who helped with Ichi the Killer. Oh, cool. And makeup artist uh, Iseo Suge, who helped with the Electric Dragon 80,000 Volts. So, because of their connections with some of these people, it's like, think about the costume design on this film. It's phenomenal. If I'm not mistaken, this is like one of his first films where he actually had to deal with that, you know? Oh, yeah, um, I think this is his first period piece. And it makes total sense, you know, and to think like everything felt authentic. That's a, a huge credit to, like I said, the people with costumes, the people who helped design the sets. Everything looked, once again, pretty realistic. You know, slums looked like slums. His home looked very nice, well kept, like an upper class family probably would have kept their homes. So aesthetically, yeah, it was very pleasing. The makeup was good. You could tell, you know, that it was done well because you're not thinking about really like the makeup itself per se. It's like, you just know it's, it's adding to these characters, right? It's adding mm -hmm. a little bit more flair. It's adding this griminess. And when I think of Sudakichi and he has like this mound of dirt on his fucking face, it's like he's blending into his environment. He's becoming a part of that. 
Yeah. He's, he's from dirt. He becomes one. And as dirty as the slums are, they're also super fucking colorful and just very vibrant. vibrant. Mm. Yeah, and that has a lot to do, I think, with that use of the the carnival esque mm-hmm. element. And uh, somebody even said something and described it like the uh, the Weimar cabaret period, you know, where things are still lively, even though it's kind of downtrodden. There's still a lot of art and, and expressionism, even in you know, quote unquote lower class. Mm-hmm. So I think this is indicative of that too. Like they're still performing. And even the guy even said, he's like, you know, I thought you were a lark coming downstream. And if it wasn't for your scar, you know, I wouldn't have anything to do with you because that's where I get my sympathy as a performer. <laughs> it's like, damn, that's kind of fucked up. But it makes sense too. Yep. So yeah, it becomes a tribe. So yeah, I think that was really cool. What did you take away from the beggar man cowering before Yukio at the end? I think the first time through, I was like, man, I was still a little bit confused and I didn't, I tried not to try to make this. Because I was still like, is this really Yukio? Is this I was Sudakichi? waiting for the double twist to find out it's still Sudakichi. That's kind of what is like, oh, there's going to be a reveal where it's not Yukio. But no, I just think it's like what I was mentioning earlier where in Scanner's you know, where Michael Ironside's character kind of gets absorbed by the main character. So he has the essence. And I think that guy kind of maybe picked up on that. Like, oh, this is not the same guy I've been berating probably who knows how long out here. Mm-hmm. Something's different about him. Something's not right or something's amiss, you know? I think that's probably what caught him off guard. And so, mm-hmm. oh, whoa. <laughs> Even the way I think the nurses too kind of approach him are a little differently too, you know? They're like, we want your dick. Yeah. What up, dog? <laughs> yeah, so there's just a different aura about him. And um, yeah, I mean, I just, like the second time through, it's just like, damn, I get it now. Like, I understand why people enjoy this film. And even though it is different from Tetsuo, it still, like I said, it still feels like a, a Shinya film. And it is a Shinya film. So I'm happy we got to talk about it. No, we've been nerding out about it, but it's really cool to see a lot of these people that we've talked about before on a project like this and seeing their connections, of course, with like Takashi Miike and all these other people. So, yeah. Yeah. Fucking dug it. Yeah. And and the cool thing, too, is it's the first time we got to talk about a Mondo Macabro release. I think it's probably your first time seeing a Mondo Macabro release. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot in the catalog that are a lot of fun, dude. So Good to know. Yeah. Maybe down the road we'll talk about some more. Hell Yeah. Did we figure out next week? I know we've got some plans. Maybe not necessarily next week, but we, uh, we'll we see. I don't, I don't know if anything's concrete at this point. Okay, cool, cool, cool. In order to find out what we do next week, then please hit subscribe however you're listening to us right now. That would be super cool and fun, and especially if you could rate and review us because of algorithms and getting up in them and getting the word out about you know listening to us. To go along with that, though, you can always just tell people about us. Like We wouldn't say no to you doing that. No, get the word out. In fact, you know what? Just, just fucking do it. Do it. <laughs> just do it. Oh, Go check out our website, www.friedsquirms.com. Our entire back catalog's there. You can contact us through the website or by emailing us, squirmcast at gmail.com. While you're at the website, click the links up at the top. We are part of the Ear Vern Podcast Network. Go check out the other shows over on the network. Listen to me talk about nerdy things over on General Nerdery. Listen to my co-host from there talk about war gaming mixed with war treatises. 
over on the Art of Wargaming with more things to come. The easiest way to keep up with all that would be to check out the website, earvrm.com, E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M.com, for everything that's coming up as it gets released. Find us over on all the social medias. Fried Squirms will be what pops up. Am I forgetting anything? I think he pretty much covered the basis. Yeah. Good, yeah. Good. But, uh, you know, for the weeks that we can't come up with films, keep giving us your recommendations. If you have any suggestions or if you're an indie filmmaker, you need your film being pimped out. We like reviewing those films. So let us know. And we're going to go figure out what we're going to talk about next week. Yeah. You know, and get a, not a head start on this. Get a, get a start on it. <laughs> so until next time, I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fried Squirms. Ew. Out. <laughs>